Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. It says, And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him, and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught, and you, are over, you will overflow with thankfulness. And as we sing this, these songs, um, just my prayer, our prayer is that our roots will grow down deeper into the truth, that our faith will grow, and uh, the darkness will be dispelled, and we will be light. And we will experience the light of Jesus in our lives. So as we sing these songs, we are singing truth. And that is a good thing. We declare his praises. So what a, um, a privilege it is to do that.
Teach me some of the holiness of 
We want to take just a few moments and respond in prayer to the song that we just sang because that was a powerful moment and actually mark if you would bring up the third uh, one the one that starts with grace um, um, debtor that talk that begins with that one well, let's just have a moment of prayer you guys can look at the words on the screen if you want you can bow your head and you can close your eyes but let's just not rush out of this for us to fully appreciate your grace, we must first be fully aware of our sin. And so, Lord, we just want to take a moment and just be honest with that. The ways that we have grieved your heart. The ways that we have not honored you. times where we did things that we shouldn't have done or or even the times where we should have done something and we did nothing and and so we're guilty simply by our failure to do and so lord we are indebted to you paid a price that we could not pay. You came to us when we could not come to you. You breathed life when we were incapable of doing so. And God, with an attitude of thanks, May our response always be one of gratitude, of praise, of worship. Lord, we surrender our lives completely and wholly to you. heaven is nothing more than us enjoying your presence and singing your praise for all eternity we are absolutely thrilled about that we love you Lord thank you so much Amen okay thank you well, it's good to see you this morning, church. Uh, if you were not here last week, you missed out on a good week. Uh, we reviewed the vision statement, which was a lot of fun and great. Just what does it mean uh, for us functionally, practically, grow disciples, 
multiply churches, glorify God, transform communities. We reviewed that. We had a potluck together, which was just a nice little sliver of heaven right there. Uh, and then we had our annual meeting. And, um, yeah, it was just it was all around a uh, good day. So if you missed any of that, though, and if you want to listen to it, um, uh, the service is online, and you can uh, enjoy it there. Um, for announcements, there, there's stuff in your bulletin. Uh, the thing that I would just continue to bring before you is that we have a privilege of hosting the Central District Conference on November 3 and 4, and then November 5 will be Harvest Missions Festival. And I ask that you would continue to be in prayer for that. Um, that's a gift to us that we get to host that and to bless these leaders and uh, to have a small part in just encouraging them, influencing them. And so we want to do that well and, uh, and just extend great hospitality to them. And so I ask that you would continue to, to be in prayer for that. Um, we want to continue uh, uh, to be in prayer for some of the people amongst us. Um, Mark, as he continues with, with his um, ongoing uh, cancer treatment. Uh, Kim Goosen got a very good um, news report um, uh, from the hospital. They, they went into that. So that was really great so far. It looks like cancer-free. So she'll need to go back, though. It's like every three months for a while and then every six months. So that is fantastic to hear on that. And Tiffany, as she continues uh, in her cancer treatments as well, too, I was reading online, it's, there's just one spot left that they're just uh, not quite sure. And why is it still there? And um, so we just want to pray about that. Um, Frida had, uh, I don't think she's here this morning, she had a blood clot. That was a little bit scary, hard time breathing, but I do believe that she is home now. And uh, so we want to be praying for, for her as well. So I think that's uh, about it um, for kind of some in-house stuff. So um, if you join me just in another word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll take the offering for this morning. Heavenly Father, we are excited about this morning. God, we are excited to study your word, to see how you would teach us, how you would lead us. Um, the timeless truth taught by your Holy Spirit, uh, written in the pages of Scripture, that, w- that we can read documents that are thousands of years old, and yet they, they apply to us today more than anything culture can offer. So God, we are excited about that. We continue to pray for those amongst us. For Mark, for Tiffany, for Frida. God, we give you praise for Kim's good report. Lord, we continue to pray for those that have been affected by the hurricanes down south and even the, the, the flooding that is happening uh, international. Um, yeah, Lord, our world has no shortage of brokenness and pain. And God, we simply say, here am I, send me. So we thank you for a good morning. Uh, and just the opportunity to worship you and, uh, and serve you. We love you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. 
Lord, we come to you, hands open, hearts open, soften us to your truth, your words, and my word, broken before you. with Trek, so prior to being here, I worked with short-term missions, and um, and typically we would take the team leaders aside and we would do some uh, kind of special leadership training for them, and what does it look like to be a team leader, and that kind of thing, and well, you know, I kind of put together sort of a little course or curriculum, if you even want to call it that, I mean, we'd get together half a dozen times, and, and we would talk about leadership, and then just different principles on leadership, and that kind of thing. But, but it was always kind of a little bit unsettling because I knew it would be hard for them to, to take that and then go into the field and kind of pass it on to others, right? Like I'd give them material and, and that kind of thing. But it all, there was always just kind of this tiny little kind of nugget of discontent that this could be a little bit better, that, that, that somehow this could somehow be more accessible. Well, then I started to, to realize or, or came across just kind of a couple um, uh, resources that really highlights the remarkable leadership example and journey that you see outlined in Nehemiah. And I was never able to do it because we we ended up moving here instead. Um, But I was really excited about being able to take the book of Nehemiah and simply turn that into our curriculum. Because how fantastic for some college student to be able to go over to, to Thailand and, uh, you know, it's like, hey, can, can you, uh, you know, we need some advice on leadership and for them to be able to go, oh, yeah, so I just happen to have my Bible here and, oh, by the way, there's a great book that just gives us all the lessons we need to know on leadership. And, and for us as well, too, right? Like, how great for us to be able to just take the different topics and the different struggles that, 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 that we face and that we wrestle with today and be able to go, oh, yeah, I got a book for that. Oh, yeah, marriage problems? Oh, yeah, there's, there's a good one right over here. It'll make you blush a couple times, but there's a good one on marriage. Oh, here's a fantastic one on leadership, right? Like, like how amazing for us to be so familiar with just the, the, the different uh, uh, um, genres and, and verses and books of the Bible to be able to go, oh, yeah, I got a book for that. Let, let, let me just pull out my Bible and, and walk you through some of those steps. So I've been, I've always had a lot of um, just respect and appreciation and excitement about Nehemiah, and so today we're starting on that, and today we are just doing just kind of the broad overview on what we're going to be looking at uh, in Nehemiah, and there's two things uh, really that, that I want to walk, that I want you to, to walk away with today. First is just an appreciation of the role of Nehemiah. And, and the, one of the things that, or the kind of the big thing that Nehemiah did is that he gave leadership to building a wall around Jerusalem. We're going to cover that. But, but the role that Nehemiah played and the task that was before him of building that wall and how that fits into the broader storyline of Scripture and God interacting with his people. I mean, I always appreciated, well, not always, I mean, you know, since I start reading about it. Always appreciate Nehemiah just from his personal leadership perspective, but it really wasn't until this week when I I was like, okay, what's the context? And then that led me down like this 20-mile rabbit hole, and it was just fascinating to understand the bigger context and and, and kind of the placement of, of this building of this wall plays in the history of Scripture and in the storyline of God's people. And so one of the first things that I want you to just walk away with is just simply an awareness and an appreciation that like Nehemiah, like we are part of a bigger story. I think sometimes we get too kind of, you know, just, well, you know, I go to church and it's a small town and it's a small church and we do our small things and it's very lovely, right? People, come on. You and I are part of a global movement that is actively trying to make sure that every person who lives, 
is given opportunity and awareness of who Jesus is and what he offers. And you and I just happen to work out of the Henderson branch or the Henderson office. Like, like, we have, like you have got to understand that. And the work that we do is built upon generation upon generation upon generation. And the work that we do will become the foundation for generation after generation after us. And so even as we are working in our present day, it is not enough to say, hey, thanks previous generations for what you have done. We have got to have a mentality that say, is this the solid foundation for the generations that will follow us? Like, like we are sucked up into something huge. It started long before us. It's going to go long after us. And it extends way beyond our borders. All right? So first, I just want you to have that understanding and that appreciation that you are part of something bigger. Secondly, I want you to see the storyline. I want you to become captivated of what happens when one guy who's got a pretty plush job says, my heart is broken for the things that break God's heart and I'm willing to do whatever is necessary to see that fulfilled. I want you to see what happens when one man just becomes sold out on this idea of what is it that pleases God. I I, I want you to just see his his journey as, as he is captivated by the heart of God and then commits all of his life and all of his resources to the fulfillment of that one thing. I think we have a lot of people Honestly, they're bored with Christianity. Because their understanding of Christianity is that, like, you show up to Sundays. Like, if you're uber-religious, you go to Sunday school. And, like, that's about it. And honestly, if that's your understanding of Christianity, then, yeah, that is boring. Alright? I can think of better things to do on a Sunday morning, if that's all we're getting out of this. Christianity is not... Like, this is like 2% of what it means to be a Christian, right? For you to be a a, a Christ follower, like 98% of it happens out there. This this is just like our our, our weekly, like, like little training meeting or AA for sinners or something like that, right? Like, Like, this is such a small part of what it means to be a Christ follower. Maybe, it, maybe it's 99 or 99.5%. I'm not sure. But the vast majority of what it means to be a Christ follower happens out there. Like, you still need to be a part of this, okay? That's not an excuse to just, like, stay home and sleep in. Even when we were working through what does it mean to grow as a disciple, for you and I to grow as a disciple, we talked about large group, small group, and no group. And this is our large group. And then that small group is, is, is like the Sunday school class or, or the small group. And it's that place where really iron sharpens iron. And you can really, um, there, there's just there's care and discipleship and, and spurring one another on. And then there's no group, which is just you and your Bible. For you to grow as a disciple requires all three. Because each one provides something that the other two don't. And so if you come to Sunday morning and you expect that this one hour of Sunday morning is somehow going to fulfill the large group and the small group and the no group, you are just completely mistaken and you're just going to be really frustrated and bored. All right? So that's, that's the kind of the, the second thing. Um, for this, um, I want to do just kind of a quick kind of 30,000-foot flyover of... of Nehemiah and, and the placement of, of uh, Nehemiah really in, in the story of the Old Testament. And, um, and so we got a, a couple slides. <laughs> There's only three. All right. <laughs> but, but bear with me. Uh, and even the first one, I know you can't read that. All right. Like, I'm not expecting you to read that. I just chose this one because the lines were helpful. Okay. So that's all that is. That's lines. I'll walk you through the lines, people. All right, but I'm a visual learner, and so lines help me. Okay, a little bit of history, all right? Hang with me here. For some of you, this is going to be very familiar, and some of you, it, it might not be, but we'll see. Genesis 12, right? God says, the plan from the beginning was to send Jesus, but God says, I need a people group between here and there 
to just kind of help get some things rolling. And um, this guy, Abraham, is really righteous, and we're good friends, and I'm going to use his descendants. And Scripture even says later on, like, they weren't even really, like, that holy or that righteous, but just God was good buds with Abraham. So he's like, let's use your descendants. Abraham has 12 kids. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a famine. They move to Egypt. They're there 400 years. While there, they proliferate like crazy. 400 years later, we have a million people. However, these people are also in slavery. Egypt just put them all under bondage, put them in slavery. Israel cries out to God. God sends Moses as a rescuer. The parallels between Moses and Jesus Christ are fantastic. It's almost like one story is pre-telling another story. Hmm. Moses leads them out of slavery. He brings them right up to the doors of the promised land. The Israelites completely botch it. God is like, you guys have such a slave mentality. I cannot work with you. They wander the desert for 40 years while all of them die off except for two. He now has a new generation that he has raised up in the desert, and he takes that new generation. They walk into the promised land. They, they, they go in. They, they, they move in. They, 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 they kick out the, the other people. They, they set up there. You got the 12 tribes, and they each get a piece of land, and they live there. For a long time, they, they work operate under this thing called a theocracy, which where God is their king. You see that played out in the book of Judges. After a while, the Israelites start looking around, and they're like, that country has a king, that country has a king, that country... Hey, why don't we get a king? And God says, because he'll abuse you, and it's going to be bad for you. And they're like, but they have one, we want one. You give us a king. Fine. Sends in Saul. It's kind of a crash and burn scenario. God's like, told you so. Then he raises up David, a man after his own heart. That goes a little bit better. Then David's son Solomon comes in. Solomon reigns as king. Very wise, very rich, except he married too many women, and that was unwise. And then he ended up following other gods. So now we're coming to where the lines split, all right? While Solomon is king, God is getting frustrated because the people are continuing to worship other gods. And God is just, he's getting fed up with it. He sends his prophet... Ahijah, G-I, Ahijah, because like no one's just called Bob in scripture. So God sends prophet, we'll just call him the prophet, to a, a guy by the name of Jeroboam. He says, Jeroboam, God's getting fed up with this nonsense. He's going to take the kingdom. He's going to carve out part of it, and he's going to give it to you. Jeroboam's like, okay, whatever. Solomon hears about this conversation, tries to have Jeroboam killed, so he flees to Egypt. Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam takes his place, and that's always confusing because the two are like one letter apart. So now you got Rehoboam over here and Jeroboam over here, and it's super hard to keep them straight. Rehoboam becomes king. Jeroboam comes back from Egypt. A group of people come to Rehoboam, and they say the taxes are really heavy. Please back off on the taxes. And he responds very rudely and talks about beating people with scorpions and that kind of thing. Ten of the tribes split off. The country splits. Ten tribes follow Jeroboam. You can go to the next slide on this one. These ten tribes are to the north. They maintain the name Israel. The two remaining tribes stay in the south. They continue to follow... Rehoboam, because even I have to look back on the two because it gets confusing. And you have these two groups. Jerusalem, key point in this. Jerusalem geographically is in the southern area. It is with Judah. It is with the southern two tribes. Okay? So now we've got the northern kingdom, which kept the name Israel, ten tribes. We've got the southern kingdom, two tribes. They call Judah, right? This, and then they, like, live for a while, and they have their ups and their downs, and they hate each other, and they fight, and they fight other people. And, and, and you know, and you're going to read about this in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, which is pretty much just two accounts of the same thing. And you get a whole lot of, and so-and-so became king at age, and he reigned for X number of years, and he did good in the eyes of the Lord, or evil in the eyes of the Lord. And, or, you know, and you just get, like, that intro played out time and time again. So these two just kind of, you know, limp along with, with their little existence. 
northern kingdom. Okay, so that split happens about 950 B.C. You can go back to our sticks, our lines. All right, so that's where they go, right? Okay, upwards line, that's Israel. Around 722, 721, the Assyrians come in, wipe them out. Haul a bunch of them off to captivity. Um, really, we, yeah, that's kind of about it for them. Um, it's actually in, the interesting. The So the southern tribe is eventually going to get defeated, but one of the things that happens with the southern tribe is that there is a government edict that allows them to return to the land. That never happens with the northern ten tribes. That government edict from the, the ruling authorities that says, hey, you guys can go back to your homeland, that never happens. And so those ten tribes eventually become called the lost ten tribes of Israel because they never really have a homeland again until 1948 when Israel is reestablished as a country. Now, it's maybe a little bit dramatic to call them the lost ten tribes of Israel because you do see in Jesus' time a lot of people who know their like tribal heritage, all right? But that's the nickname that is given to those ten. Um, to the south, all right. So Israel is wiped out by the Assyrians. To the south. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire rises up. They take control of the Assyrians. And then also around 586, they wipe out the southern country of Judah. They demolish Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. Solomon had built a temple. It was very nice. He lined the inside walls with gold. I think that would be very nice and expensive, okay? They tear it down. They haul away the treasures. Temple is no more. Jerusalem is no more. Everyone gets hauled away around 586. They're in captivity for 70 years. Um, while they are gone, so everyone gets hauled away except for like the poorest of the poor of the poor of the poor. Those people are left in Jerusalem. Those people that are left in Jerusalem, those Israelites, start to marry and have kids with some of the local nations. And so you, you get kind of a mixed nationality race that's going on. That group of people become known as the Samaritans. And what you will see then throughout the rest of Scripture is that the Samaritans, the, the mixed race group, and then the pure Israelites, they really don't like each other much. And there's a whole lot of conflict just kind of all throughout. So that's where we get the Samaritans in that. Um, so the, the, the southern tribe is, is hauled away um, under Babylonian captivity. Then Persian Empire rises up takes over the Babylonians, and within a year or two of getting into control, they say, you know what, you guys can go home. And that is what brings us to Nehemiah. More specifically, that is what brings us to Ezra, Nehemiah. Up until, one source told me, the 15th century, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book. Because it is one massive event. It covers a hundred years. But Ezra and Nehemiah really need to be looked at as one event. If you have your Bibles with you, um, please open them now to, to, to Ezra. And um, just, just kind of want to give you a little bit of uh, context on what we're dealing with. Ezra and Nehemiah. What's going to happen in these two books will span 100 years in three distinct phases under three distinct leaders. Go to the beginning of Ezra. Our time frame. Chapter 1, verse 1. The year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Then if you look, oh, like underline that. I don't know if you mark in your Bible. I love writing in my Bible. Because the point is to know it, not to keep it clean. Mark up your Bibles. The year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Hop over to chapter 2, verse 2. I think that's the first place. Zerubbabel. So you know he got made fun of. Zerubbabel leads the first wave. Several exiles go with him. He's given massive resources from the king. He is sent back to Jerusalem for the purpose of building the temple. So he brings... I forget what it was. Do I have it down? 40,000 people. They travel four months. They get back to Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. There's some local adversaries, and the construction has to stop, and 
but then they get it restarted. But eventually they get it built. It takes them 20 years to build it. That temple that Zerubbabel builds, it gets remodeled a little bit later on by some group. I forget their name. And then it gets remodeled by King Herod. It's then called Herod's Temple, and that is the temple that Jesus knows. All the stories that you read about Jesus in the temple happen in this temple that Zerubbabel, well, that's a rough one, Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, Z-Man, builds. It is later destroyed in A.D. 70. The, The Israelites did an uprising against the Roman Empire. They came in, there's fighting. Somehow, the temple is set on fire. It burns to the ground. All the gold in the temple melts, seeps in between the cracks of the stones. The soldiers want the gold. They push the stones apart to get the gold that is between the temple, thus fulfilling Jesus' prophecy. Not one stone will be remain on top of another one. So that this temple that they build is in play for about 600 years. Okay, That is phase one. Also during this time you see Haggai and Zechariah, a couple Old Testament prophets, uh, Zerubbabel needs a little bit of motivation. They come over and, and help things out. That's phase one. Um, turn to Ezra chapter 7. This is phase two, 60 years later. Um, the reign of Artaxerxes. That's your time frame. There were three of them who went by the name Artaxerxes. They think it's the first one. Would have been easier if they just had different names, but whatever. Ezra. Ezra is a prophet. He is a teacher. Um, He knows the law. He comes back. He also has massive resources from the king. It says the king granted him all that he asked for. Ezra comes back and he teaches the people the law. He institutes the the priesthood again. It's kind of like Zerubbabel built the temple and now Ezra comes back and he just kind of gets everything operational and functional again. He gets the priesthood established and the sacrifices established. He teaches the the people the law and and it's it's just, it's good, right? So that's phase two. Phase three is Nehemiah. Turn to Nehemiah. Uh, chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah. Chapter 2, verse 1, King Artaxerxes. Underline that again. That's your third time frame. This is about 13 years later after Ezra. Nehemiah is going to come and he's going to build and he's going to rebuild the wall. The wall has been torn down for 140 years. So it's like overgrown and rubble and buried under stuff and just a mess, right? Um, he is going to return. He's going to work in Jerusalem for 12 years. He's going to take a little break. He's going to head back to the king. He's there for three years, and then he comes back kind of for the, the final play, for his, kind of his final term. In Nehemiah, you're going to see the remarkable role of prayer. His entire journey begins with about three to four months of prayer and fasting. And then all throughout, you see these short little quick prayers that Nehemiah prays to God. Chapter 13 alone has 13 prayers. I mean, 11 prayers. You're going to see the incredible role of prayer involved in his leadership and involved in this this movement. Walls. Walls were hugely significant in Jerusalem. Not just to Jerusalem, but to the entire region. No walls meant that you were vulnerable to, to outside invaders coming in and taking all of your stuff, right? And that's rough because you harvest all your crop and then they walk in and take it and leave. And now you have nothing to eat for the next year. So no walls is a bad thing. But the other thing you have to realize is that Judah at the time is only about 900 square miles, meaning that if you have one fortified central location, that is enough to provide protection for the entire region. Meaning if the walls go up, not only do they protect... Jerusalem, but they add stability to the entire nation of Judah. This is not just a Jerusalem thing. This provides stability to the entire region. Um, And actually, uh, that's quite advantageous for uh, King Artaxerxes as, as well, too. So the locals oppose him. And you got three main opposition. You got a guy by the name of Sanballat, Another funny name. He's a Samaritan. You have Tobiah and you have Geshem. 
And they are the governors and the leaders of, of the regions on the three sides, Samaria in the north, Amon in the east, and Arabia in the south. He shows up, and the three prominent leaders from the three surrounding countries try to intervene, get him killed, all different kinds of stuff. Here's what I found fascinating. Right around the time that the wall is finished, Malachi is written. Malachi is the last book of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Malachi, I mean, he's ragging on the people for all different kinds of sins, and it's all totally parallel to what we got issues with today. After Malachi finishes his book, God goes silent, and we hear nothing from God again until an angel appears to a virgin and said, You will be with child, and you shall call his name Jesus. When Nehemiah finished that wall, when this three-phase thing, they build the temple, they get things reestablished in the operation of the temple, they build the walls, Malachi gives one last push, come on, you guys, you've got, you need, like, get your head in the game, we need transformed hearts. And then it just goes silent for 400 years. Really, like, building the wall is... is it is almost the last thing that happens in all the New Testament, all the Old Testament. This is pretty much the last significant event before God goes silent and then Jesus comes. The book of Nehemiah. The whole first half of Nehemiah is all about the, 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 the task or the project of building the wall. They're going to build a wall that's two and a half miles long. They're going to do it in 52 days. It's pretty amazing. Um, and Nehemiah is right there with them. I mean, he's got calluses on his hand and dirt under his fingernails, and every day he goes home exhausted. Second half of the book is all about people. And anyone that's owned a business, been in leadership, they can tell you, sure, that the tasks are one part of it. But, man, the people management, that is like 90% of the job. I've talked to more than one business owner where I'm like, hey, what's the hardest part of your job? And they're like, people. Mainly the staff. The second half is all about people management. And, and we get to see his, his leadership through all that. Nehemiah, Ezra, Malachi, they're all trying to get the Israelites to turn from their sins. They deal with finances. The, the Israelites are charging a heavy interest on mortgages, and, and, and that was, that's not allowed in the Old Testament, so they're crushing their fellow man with debt. They have to deal with marriage because godly people are marrying ungodly people, and so now things are a mess in, in the home. They have to deal with a corrupt priesthood because they've got spiritual leaders who are using their position for personal gain and just leading pe God's people away from the truth. They have to deal with social justice issues because the, the poor and the needy are being taken advantage of to the point where the lower class is having to sell their children into slavery to pay for their debts that they owe to the upper class. The people are not honoring the Sabbath. They're not tithing. I mean, we could do an entire second series on the sin issues of Nehemiah or the people of, of that era and what they were dealing with. I mean, honestly, people, I'm, I'm not sure we really have any new sins. I think we just recycle the old ones. The big picture. His, his, his work of building this wall is amazing just how it fits in with the overarching storyline of Scripture. This is the last thing that happens in the Old Testament before Jesus comes again. And, I mean, this is the place where Jesus does so much of his ministry. About three-quarters of the Gospel will happen inside those walls. Because about, I think it's three-quarters of the Gospel, really just focus on the last week of Jesus while he's in Jerusalem before his crucifixion. We are part of something bigger. We are part of something that precedes us by hundreds of thousands of years. It will go after us by, I'm not sure how long, 
Apparently a few people thought Tuesday, but I think they're wrong. I was reading one article, and they're like, because, I, I, yeah, they're like, there's no such thing as a Christian numerologist, so we don't even know where you got this, but anyways. So it'll go for a while. We build upon the work of others. Others are going to build upon the work of, of us. And just this this journey of Nehemiah, we're, um, we're going to get into it more next week. Next week we're having communion, and we're going to do that thing again where we uh, offer to pray for you when, when you do communion. Next week we're going to go over the first part of Nehemiah, and we're going to look at where he receives news that, that the walls are still crumbled, which is, by the time he hears it, it's like 140-year-old news. And yet something that is 140 years old breaks this man's heart. And he, 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 he's captivated by it. And he enters into this place of three to four months of just prayer and repentance and fasting. And out of that place comes this remarkable journey of, of following God. And so next week when we have communion, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray that, that you would be captivated by something from God. I don't know what. Your journey is going to be different. But it's just going to be a space where in communion we can say, God, I sense that your heart breaks for this, that your heart is passionate about this, and so, Lord, I want to give myself fully to it. Whatever that looks like, Lord, I will follow you into this. I will be bold. I will be daring. Because I think we crave significance. We crave the deep things of God. I don't think many people are actually like, you know, I just love to lead a mediocre, lame Christian life. Like, I just, you know, I just want the salvation thing, and then I just want to eke into heaven by the skin of my teeth. I don't think we actually desire that. I think we crave significance. I think we crave being part of something bigger than ourselves. I think we be, crave being part of a movement that, that is millennia long. And so we're going we're gonna to look at that um, next week. So, Amen. Kind of abrupt. We're going to call it good there. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And then you're going to prepare your heart for next Sunday. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah and just how it is such a remarkable example and role model to us. God, we look forward to seeing the storyline of this man who just gives himself completely to you and to your cause and how you, you honor that. God, I believe it's in Second Chronicles that talks about the eyes of the Lord search to and fro amongst the earth looking for people who, who are sold out to you that, that you might come along and encourage them. And so, God, we want to be that people. God, may your, may your eyes land on us, rest on us, that, that we would be a people sold out to the things of God. Lord, prepare our heart for next week. As we look at how Nehemiah's heart is broken, God, I pray that you would be preparing us with a broken heart. Lord, I pray that next week would be one of the greatest Sundays of sacrifice this church has ever known as people come forward and say, God, I want to give myself wholly to the, to the things that you are passionate about. God, it's a privilege that you invite us to work alongside you to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, we recognize that it's not easy. We recognize that, that there are sacrifices along the way. We recognize that it's totally countercultural and that a lot of people don't understand it. But you, Lord, we also recognize that in the scope of eternity, this is just like the best adventure ever to be a part of. And we just we want to cling to that, Lord. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you for its continuity. Thank you for its incredible relevance to our lives. 
worship you and we love you. In your name, amen. Please stand with us as we respond. our confession this morning. We are weak, but you are strong. We are not whole, but you are whole. You make us righteous, and you lead us in the right path as we turn to you as a family. You are just me. 